All right, this podcast has been, and YouTube video, has been a long time in coming. I promised that I would give the next part in my series that I've been giving at my church of apologetics. I've been giving a four-part series on apologetics as a crash course, how we know truth exists, God exists, Scripture is the Word of God, and Jesus is God. We've already done the how we know truth exists. Now we're going to get into how we know God exists. So let's get into it. All right, sorry this has been such a long time in coming. I've been a little bit overwhelmed and probably in some ways a little bit lazy when it comes to getting on my podcast stuff and my YouTube stuff. Um, but I'm here now. I'm going to hopefully start doing this a lot more regularly over the summer and hopefully continue that on into the school year once things pick up again with ministry. But I wanted to jump back into this just very basic bare bones introduction to apologetics dealing with these four issues of how we know truth exists, God exists, scripture is the word of God, and Jesus is God. So this week, what we're getting into is how we know Jesus is God. I'm going to take about an hour to go through all of this information. Um, this is a series that I'm hoping to do at a lot of churches in my area. I just finished doing it at my home church at Two Rivers. I'm giving it at what I would call my second home church at LifePoint Church um, starting next month. And this is just, I think, a very practical thing that I think if people could just know these basics of apologetics, all churches would be in a just much better place. Um, and so with that, what we're going to do over this time is just kind of get into these basic arguments. Um, so how would you argue that God exists? There's three different arguments that I think you could present. First, what we're going to talk about is what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, this is called the Kalam cosmological argument or argument from creation. Um, it's called Kalam because it's a specific version of an argument from creation. There is other versions that we could argue from maybe more philosophical standpoint. Um, this is arguing it in a certain way. Um, so premise number one is that everything that had a cause, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Premise two, the universe had a beginning. And premise three, the universe therefore has a cause. This is what we call a valid argument, meaning that if anyone's going to disagree with this, they would have to show that one or more of the premises are false. Because if these premises are in fact true, the conclusion actually does follow. That's what makes it a valid argument. Now we're going to start to argue for why we think this is a sound argument, which just means that the premises are are itself true. We know that the, the conclusion follows if the premises are true, but now we're going to argue for the reasons why we know that the premises themselves are actually true. So the difference then in some ways between logical and reasonable is an interesting thing to kind of focus in on in the midst of this. Someone might try to argue for the existence of God from a purely logical standpoint, as we were talking about just before. As I was saying, if someone's going to disagree with this, because it's a valid argument, they would have to show that either premise one or premise two is false from a logical standpoint. Now, that's a lot for us to try to argue for. And I think there's reasons why I wouldn't actually argue that that's the case we want to make. Because if at all someone can prove that one or more of those premises is false, then in the end, our argument just doesn't work at all. So instead, I would argue that we should 
argue not from a logical standpoint, but from a reasonable standpoint. A logical standpoint is going to be making the argument, if A, then B, A, therefore B. A reasonable argument is going to say, if A, then likely B, A, therefore B. So in some sense, I'm going to tone down this argument and others a little bit in order to make this something that's a little less uh, verbose, a little bit uh, less bold of a statement, but also a little bit easier to defend by not making it a logical argument. So by this, we're then saying that everything that had a beginning, therefore, has a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore, it's likely or it's most reasonable to conclude that the universe has a cause. So premise number one, everything had a beginning that had a beginning had a cause. We have three other explanations that could be for this. Either you could have a cat that is uncaused. It has always existed. It could be caused as our argument is making, or it could be self-caused. Now, if we evaluate these possibilities, we would first see an uncaused would say there's just no explanation for why that cat exists. It's just always been here. There's no way we could reason why it is here, why it exists. It just simply exists. So there's no reasonable explanation. There is no actual explanation for its existence. It's magic in a sense. The other view is that it's self-caused. But this doesn't make sense because then in sense you're saying that the cat existed before it existed in order to bring itself to existence. It's kind of the idea of being your own grandpa or your own father. There's no way you could be your own father because you wouldn't have been there to begin with to create yourself. So that doesn't add up either. So it makes sense then to conclude as we are arguing that the cat has to have a cause. So then we need to argue for our second premise because some would just say the universe has always been here. Therefore, it doesn't need a cause. But this is where we would bring in the Big Bang. Now, I know a lot of Christians might object to this move. They would say that they've been told, they've been raised in, whether you grew up at a Christian school, grew up at a Christian home, whatever else, the Big Bang somehow goes against Christianity because it's not saying that God created it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I would just simply say one simple thing. I just know who banged it. The universe banged into existence. I just knew who banged it, so to speak. We are saying that there has to be a reason for that bang to come into existence, and that reason itself is God. And so this still, I think, can fit in quite reasonably with the Christian worldview. So how do we argue for this? How do we argue for the Big Bang? One thing would be what we call the second law of thermodynamics. Um, this is the S in an acronym that we're going to create. Um, the second law of thermodynamics is just saying that we are running out of usable energy. Therefore, the universe hasn't always existed. It's kind of like your gas tank. Your gas tank has a limited amount of gas that it can hold. And we know that because you run out of gas, if you do not refill that gas tank, that therefore the universe or therefore your gas tank is not infinite. Now, we don't have any reason to think more energy is coming into the universe just like filling up your gas tank. What we do see is that the universe is running out of this usable energy. Now, some would say energy doesn't actually disappear. This is not what we mean, though, by the law of conservation. It's not talking about how energy can transfer into electric and then to heat energy. And so therefore, energy always 
sustains or it always exists. We're talking about a type of energy that is actually literally running out, whether it's heat or we can even look at some of those practical things like fossil fuels that is actually running out. And so it's kind of like a flashlight. If we turned on a flashlight an infinite amount of time ago, it would have run out of energy eventually and that light would go out. But we see that the universe, despite the fact that as far as we know, as far back as we can see, it's been using that energy, it hasn't run out of that energy. And we see that the universe is running out of that energy. Therefore, the universe hasn't always been here to use the energy that is here. Otherwise, it would have run out of the energy by now. This is backed up by different excuse me, theoretical physicists, guys like Arthur Eddington. He says, if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There's nothing for it to collapse in deepest humiliation. This isn't something that we're arguing for, saying that the Bible says so. The Bible says that the universe hasn't always existed, therefore it must be true. I'm arguing from science. This is things that scientists agree are actually true. The next to our acronym is universe is expanding. We know that the universe is expanding out. And so that tells us the universe must have had a beginning. It's just like if you think of an explosion in reverse, if you reverse that, that explosion backwards, it condenses into a single point. And in that same sort of way, what we see is that universe hasn't always existed as we see it now. It expanded out, is continuing to expand out, and therefore it has to be different. The way that we know this is from what we call red shift. Um, the red shift is essentially uh, when you look out into space, you see a similar thing to the Doppler effect. If you forget what the Doppler effect is like with that ambulance drives by your house and it has one sort of sound as it comes near you and another sound as it goes away. The reason for that is as it's coming towards you, the ambulance itself, because of the trajectory, because the ambulance is driving towards you, is pushing those sound waves faster to you. As the ambulance goes away from you, it's pushing those sound waves further from you. And even though sound travels faster than the ambulance, it's going to give that sound a different sound as it goes away from you, as it comes towards you. The same thing happens when we look through visual um, sort of indicators. When we look out, what we can see is that the universe, when we look at planets, we look at stars, they have this what we call red shift or red hue to them. Meaning from a scientific standpoint, we know that that actually is the same sort of indicator that those things are moving away from us. Just like the Doppler effect gives a different sound as things move towards you and away from you, things that are moving away from you or towards you give off a different color in a sense when they move away or towards you. When they come closer, it's a blue shift. When it goes further away, it's a red shift. And what we see is from science that that's actually shown through looking out into the universe. Another thing is what we call the radiation afterglow. This is temperature variations exactly as we would expect from the explosion that the universe comes from. So scientists conjecture if the universe is a result of an explosion from the universe, what we should see is kind of these pockets, these temperature variations all throughout the universe that's rather consistent. Um, it's kind of like when old school television, when, when you turned off that television, 
it appeared to kind of have a glow on it for a time afterwards. And that's the result of kind of the explosion, the radiation off of your television. And because of that, we, we knew that there's kind of an explosion happening there in the same sort of way we can look out at space and we see the same sort of thing happening within space, showing us that the universe is the result of an explosion. The next thing is what we call great galaxy seeds. This is ripples in the galaxy that are the results of an explosion. It's like a guy belly flopping into a pool, throwing a rock into the lake, whatever you may want to think about. It's essentially this idea that when an explosion happens, it has these ripples or galaxy seeds is what we call them from a scientific standpoint. Um, as we would expect, when we look out into the universe, we see these ripples these seeds throughout the universe, proving once again that the universe is a result of an explosion within the universe. Um, George Smoot, who was in charge of this Kobe space project that basically uh, researched whether this was true or not, he had this to say, if you are religious, it's like looking at God. Essentially, he's saying that these ripples, these galaxy seeds, so clearly prove that the universe hasn't always existed, that it's the result of an explosion, aka the Big Bang, that so clearly shows that the universe had a beginning that it seems to prove that God must exist. And he's saying this as someone who actually does not believe in God. The last thing is what we call Einstein's theory of general relativity. This is the theory that started the search for all of these things that we've already talked about. Um, Einstein's theory of relativity basically said that time, space, and matter are all co-relative, meaning if one exists, the others have to exist. If one doesn't exist, the others can't exist. They all are codependent upon one another. That being said, Einstein didn't like the conclusion of it because it made him realize, all right, space, time, and matter have not always existed, cannot always have existed, and that would mean and seem to indicate that there must be something that started time, space, and matter. And that seems to point to the existence of a God. He did not like that conclusion. He fudged the equation in order to make the universe something that could actually be eternal. But he later changed his mind after he looked out of a space telescope um, that was on top of Mount Hermon. And from that, he saw the redshift that we talked about earlier. And that showed him that his conclusions were correct. He called that the greatest mistake of his entire career to ever change the equation to make the universe eternal. It admitted that the universe didn't always exist. So all of this points to the acronym that we call SURGE, second law of thermodynamics, meaning that the universe is running out of reusable energy. The universe is expanding. This is what we call red shift. Can't have always been expanding. The radiation afterglow is radiation from the Big Bang explosion. We expect this from an explosion. Great galaxy seeds. This is very precise temperature variations in the radiation afterglow and galaxies form early on in the universe. And then lastly, Einstein's theory of general relativity showing us this time, space, and matter are all co-relative, which gives you the acronym SURGE, which makes me think of the energy drink SURGE that came out when I was a kid that I guess really just came out too early because moms didn't want it, wanted, wanted any of their kids to have it because it had too much sugar. But now all these energy drinks that exist now are way worse for kids than any of that stuff. So that is your first argument. What that gives you. 
So what does that mean? So what? The universe hasn't always existed. What does that mean? That means the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. What does that start sounding like? A thing that is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Well, God fits that category pretty well. Now let's get into our next argument. The next argument is what we call the teleological argument. This is premise number one. Everything that has an intelligent complex design has a designer. The universe has an intelligent complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. The teleological argument you might guess is another way of calling the design argument. The teleological is the nice philosophical or really scientific, not really scientific. Well, yeah, scientific uh, title for it. If you want to sound smart, you'll say a teleological argument, you'll say cosmological argument, or you could say argument from beginning and argument from design. So we need to be a little more precise in this. We need to be precise in saying that it's intelligent and complex. What do we mean by that? Well, first I could come down the steps. I really like alphabet serial. This is not true. I'm just using it for the illustration. I really like alphabet serial. I come down the steps and Peter's one of my roommates or someone has poured me a nice bowl of cereal. And in it, I see the words, no. Now I could conclude that my roommate is trying to say no to me regarding a question I asked them yesterday that they never answered. Or probably a more reasonable is that it really doesn't seem to be portraying anything. That was just chance that it actually showed that. But this could be an intelligent message. It could be that my roommate is intelligently trying to express something to me by writing no in my alphabet serial. But I could also see written in serial just completely randomly a whole series of letters all lined up, but it's just gibberish. A, B, F, G, H, I, L, K, like all arranged in a row now I could look at that and say that's very complex, but it's not intelligently portraying anything. And so therefore I wouldn't conclude it's a message from my roommates about anything. When we're talking about the argument from design, we're talking about something more particular. If I came down the steps and I saw in the alphabet serial tax day, now I might conclude that my roommates are trying to pull a trick on me, trying to make me feel guilty for the fact I didn't pay my taxes on time or something else like that, or making me just afraid that maybe the IRS has snuck into my house and I should be worried about something. That includes now an intelligent and complex message. That's what we mean. It can't just be complex and it can't just be intelligent. It needs to be both. So when we look out in the universe, can we conclude that everything seems to have an intelligent complex design. This is all, this whole argument is in some ways based upon what we call Williams Paley's watch. If, if you and I were walking along the beach and we found this nice Rolex just laying on the beach and I told you, wow, that's really cool. That's really beautiful. It's amazing that the lightning just hit the sand so perfectly to make a perfectly spherical lens or circular lens and that some explosions in volcanic 
and I, where iron was, created these iron spokes that then came together with crabs that brought those together into the pieces that now make up that watch. Now, that could be an explanation for that Rolex. But I don't think we would say that that's a good explanation. Like I said earlier, we are trying to argue for what is the most reasonable explanation for the data that we're looking at. So when I look at this watch, I see that it's an intelligent and complex design. The most reasonable thing is to conclude that it must have an intelligent and complex designer behind it. So this is arguing for our first premise, premise one. Premise two, we are going to argue that the universe has a similar complex intelligent design and therefore needs an intelligent complex designer. Let me check something really quick. <laughs> um, okay. So this is what we call anthropic principles or what might be called Goldilocks zone when it comes to looking out in the universe and just where we are. Our galaxy type, when we look at our galaxy, our galaxy is what we call a spiral disk galaxy. So when we look at this design here, um, I think I can show my mouse, we see that it has these spiral arms coming up and out of it. Now the nice thing about this, being a disk shape, that allows us to look out. It also, this disk shape galaxy, this spiral disk shaped galaxy is actually necessary for life to exist. Any other galaxy type, it's not possible for life to exist on any planet anywhere in that galaxy. It's necessary for life to exist. Our position in this galaxy is also important. If we were further in to this galaxy, we would be where stars themselves form, where the harder elements are actually gathered together through the explosion of stars within the universe. If we were in that area, there's no way we could ever exist. Life would just be impossible. Now, if we were further out, we would be so far away from where these stars are formed and explode to create those harder elements that we actually couldn't have planets. So we will also couldn't live there. If we were even different with our parent star, that parent star is necessary. Its age, its distance from the sun, are all necessary for life to exist. A different age of that star or a different type of our star would mean that it would have solar flares. Solar flares already exist on our star, but they're, believe it or not, so big that they're bigger than the, our planet. They're bigger than Earth. But most sun types, most star types, those solar flares are so big that even the distance that we are from the sun, it would consume and kill us. Also, the age of our star means that those solar flares aren't so crazy. We're kind of in a much more calmer age for our star, which means that it's going to be consistent in the life that it gives. It's not going to die anytime soon. It allows life to come about, but also not so young, you could say, that it has these solar flares that would actually consume and destroy us. The rotation that we have within our galaxy is necessary for us to exist. Our distance from the moon is necessary for the uh, rising of the tides and the lowering of the tides. And without those, life on Earth couldn't exist. 
The size of the moon is necessary for that as well. The size of the moon and the distance of the moon also make it possible. This is where it gets even more interesting because it's one thing to look at some of these things and say, all right, this allows life to just exist on our planet. But it's not just that. We haven't just drawn lucky enough in order for life to exist on our planet. We've drawn lucky enough for life to exist on our planet and for us to observe certain things that wouldn't be possible anywhere else. So not only are, is our position in the galaxy necessary for us to live, it's also necessary for us to be able to see. If we were further in, we would also have so many other stars nearby us that it's kind of like walking out on a sunny day after you've been inside all day and suddenly you just can't see. Your eyes can't adjust and you wouldn't be able to see out. In the same sort of way, we could exist on a planet that actually wouldn't allow us to look out because where we would be positioned within our galaxy. But our position in the galaxy allows us to do that. Furthermore, our moon, its distance from us and its size allows it to give a lunar eclipse of our sun that allows us to observe things we could otherwise never do that allows us to observe things that any other planet that has all of these other same things but has different moon size and distance wouldn't be able to observe but we are able to observe this isn't just talking about our ability to survive it's actually talking about an ability for us to observe and learn things it's almost as if we were put on a planet that would allow us to learn and grow purposely. Another thing is seismic activity. The seismic activity of the tectonic plates that happen on our planet and continue to happen on our planet actually are necessary for life to exist on our planet. That actually creates a kind of crop rotation type thing. Nutrients, elements, other things are rotated throughout our planet by the tectonic plate movement that allows for life to exist here. The position of Jupiter in our galaxy is necessary for life. When you look at Jupiter, everyone always notices that Jupiter has these pock marks, kind of like a teenage kid who's got zits and pock marks as they grow older from their zits. Well, that's the result of asteroids hitting that planet. And sometimes Jupiter's, the asteroids that hit Jupiter are larger than the Earth. Jupiter is an extremely large planet, well bigger than ours, and actually acts as a cosmic vacuum. Its position from us and its distance from us means that what happens is when something like an asteroid bigger than the Earth comes into our solar system, and it could maybe come for us, it's sucked in by the gravitational force of Jupiter and hits Jupiter instead of us. And it being further out rather than further in, where it could suck things towards us on its way to Jupiter, makes sure that it actually acts as a cosmic vacuum, cleaning up our solar system and allowing life to exist on our planet. The quantity of sulfur on our planet is necessary because unlike Mars, where a lot of people will look at it and say, well, life maybe is possible on Mars, actually untrue. The only way po we possibly could have life available on Mars because of the amount of sulfur content on Mars is if we imported dirt from Earth to Mars in order to terraform it. It's not possible to have life on that planet. 
The rotation of the earth is necessary for the temperature variations. The tilt of the earth is necessary for the temperature variations for the seasons that are also necessary for life to exist. If you want to learn more about these things, I would encourage you to look up Improbable Planet or the Creators in the Cosmos by Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist from Canada. Um, he has gathered a list of over 200 of these anthropic principles that you can go on his website and look at. All of these showing that the universe is very precisely tuned, meaning it's more reasonable to believe that there's a designer behind all of this than there is to believe that it just came about by random chance. And I'm going to pause. Again, scientists agree with this conclusion. The more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe has some sense must have been must have known we were coming by freeman dyson he is a phd physicist another one for the scientists who have lived by his faith and the power of reason the story ends like a bad dream he has scaled the mountain of ignorance he is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself up over the final rock he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries so here he's explaining that the scientists, he's, he's thinking he's coming to all reason. And then here he is. And all the theologians have already beaten them there. Other arguments from design, you might look at irreducible complexity. This is what we call the bacterial flagellum. In this, we can actually see that this is an engine that exists inside of bacterial flagellum. It basically is just a little tail coming off of it and an engine that spins that tail and that's what projects the bacteria forward that's all the engine is it's very basic it's very simple but if you were to take away one part of that engine the whole engine wouldn't work and the bacteria couldn't get around and therefore it wouldn't actually help it survive now if evolution is true then this all has to come about by random chance all at once because if all of this isn't there all at once then the engine just doesn't work it has no practical purpose and the bacterial wouldn't be able to do its job and it wouldn't survive other things that you can look at is dna information the information amount contained in the one celled amoeba now i don't want to sit here let me pause really quick i'm not wanting to harp on so hard against evolution i think this is something that oftentimes as christians we get off onto a tangent to focus on evolution which which is a really a secondary issue because in the end if god wanted to produce mankind and all of creation through evolution i think he could have i think this ends up being practically a hard thing to ground biblically i think it's hard to say that evolution could be true if evol if the bible is actually true but i don't think it ends up being a primary issue because in the end i don't think we're going to end up in heaven and people are going to say hey i believed in evolution and god's going to reject them because they believed in evolution i think other things are more primary of believing that god created the universe um, that if evolution happened god used evolution he's still the creator of the universe um, that jesus died for our sins those are first issues that are issues we should be willing to die on evolution is a secondary issue and i think oftentimes the best thing they can do rather than focusing on evolution is just to point out i think god if he wanted could have done it this way 
though I might have some science of why I don't think he actually did. Here's a couple of examples. DNA information contained in the one-celled amoeba that all of life is supposed to have come from is equal to a thousand sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. You might be one of those people who doesn't remember having these encyclopedias. As a kid, when I had homework and I needed to do research, then you would pull out your encyclopedia, you'd pull out the letter that included the word that you wanted to research and learn more about, and you would read that article, the one article. It was Wikipedia on paper. And when you did a project, you would cut that piece and that the pictures that the that Encyclopedia Britannica had, and you'd put that on your poster board and get yelled at by your mother later because that meant that you also cut out the article behind it and no one could ever read either article ever again. But that's neither here nor there. All of that to be said, the amount of information contained in one-celled amoeba that all of life is supposed to have spurred from is equal to a thousand sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. I don't think it's reasonable to conclude that came about by random chance. I think it's reasonable to believe that that came about by an intelligent creator. The position of the Big Bang itself. Things like the expansion rate of the universe that continues to expand today, if that was altered too much lower, then the expansion wouldn't happen and we wouldn't be here. If it was too high, then everything would expand out too quickly and things wouldn't be able to form and we wouldn't be here. Those sort of things with the expansion rate of the universe or the Big Bang itself and other elements are so precise to give us reasons both through the cause of the universe itself and through the preciseness of the cause for the universe itself in the Big Bang to believe that the universe must have come about by a designer. So what about the multiverse? In the midst of all of this, people might look at it and say, well, what if there's been multi there's been other universes before this. Now, we're not getting into a whole Spider-Man thing in the midst of this. Um, this is interesting to look at for one reason in that atheists never really turned to this theory until we started seeing all the science that backs up what we've already talked about so far. Until that point, scientists just concluded that universe has always existed but when the science started to prove otherwise and that the universe is too well designed, then they started to postulate, well, maybe there's tons of other universes out there and we just happen to exist in the one that's very well precisely designed that also has a cause behind it. This doesn't account for a couple of things. Space-time theories, aka space-time and matter are co-dependent. This doesn't explain that. Because now space, time, and matter can somehow exist and not exist in the same time. The universe really would be all of the universes. It would all, all have to come about at the same time in a sense there. And this also explains too much. This is what I mean by that. When, when you say that ultimately the universe we are in now just could be one of thousands, millions, possibly even more, of universes that already exist now, you've explained too much to use that to then explain away why our universe seems to have design. These other ones don't have the same amount of design. We just happen to be in the one that has more design. Well, I can use that same explanation to explain way more and more unbelievable things. And this is already starting to stretch 
the line of being more reasonable explanation of the information to begin with. So what I mean by that is, well, it could exist that in another universe, there exists this tree and this tree has bark or has leaves. And these leaves happen to be eight and a half by 11. And they happen to be almost the exact same consistency as the paper that you and I do our homework on. And that these leaves, they, they shed off in different seasons and often fall onto this grass. And this grass actually emits an ink-like substance that is almost exactly identical to the ink that exists in your printer. And there happened to be once that in this universe that had all of these elements, these trees and grass, um, so many pieces of paper came off to write precisely the origin of the species, Darwin's book explaining the evolutionary process. Word for word, the exact same. Because in an infinite amount of universes, there could be many universes that actually have these plants that do this sort of thing. And many, many times that these leaves came off and landed on that grass until eventually it created the exact same ink shapes as the entire book of the origin of species. And then this frog-like creature came up that actually has metal within it that when it bites something, it's like staples and it stapled that all together to make exactly the origin of a species book printed and stapled together. It's possible. If there's a multiverse of planet multiverse, that's possible. I can give now an explanation of how that came about in the multiverse. It explains too much. Design is seen in all sizes and scales ends up being another problem. If you're going to say that there's uni other universes, now you just need to, need to give an explanation for how these other universes have precise design. Because again, it's not just a matter of, well, other universes popped into existence. That creates a lot of problems of there's very precise design for a universe to exist in any form whatsoever. And so now you have to explain what's causing that. In a sense, you've only multiplied the problem because now instead of having just one universe that has a lot of precise design that you have to explain, even the universes that have less design but still have a lot because they have to in order to exist at all, you have to give an explanation for. So now you have more to give an explanation for. All of these models for a multiverse have been tested scientifically and they've been found wanting. You and I cannot discover another universe while we're looking at the universe we are in. It's impossible. It's by definition outside of the realm of science because science is studying the universe as we know it here. It cannot then discover things about the universe outside of itself. Um, <clears throat> so for an unconscious impersonal, unintelligent, unknowable to create something that is all of this by laws of cause and effect. A cause cannot be greater than or must be greater than the effect that it's bringing. The last argument that we're going to talk about is what we call the moral argument. This is very precise in the way that we explain this. So listen carefully. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. 
This is very well put in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book on just the basics of the Christian worldview. I don't think there's anything that I've read that proposes and explains the moral argument in a more practical and simplistic way than he does in that book. So I'd highly recommend you checking this out if you are interested to learn more. A couple clarifications that we have to make in this. First clarification, I'm not saying with this argument that an atheist cannot be moral. But what I am saying is that an atheist cannot ground morality without a belief in God. It's kind of like someone might be able to build a building really well, but unless they build it on a good foundation, the building will fall apart. It kind of sounds a little familiar, like an illustration I've heard someone use in the past about building a house on the sand. So that's what we're getting at. A second clarification is that we are not saying there is one moral virtue that must be done every single time. Now, somebody might look at it and say, what you're saying, if you're saying there is objective moral values, is that there is always, you should always do one moral thing. Lying is always wrong. So in any and every circumstance, you should not lie. That is not what we're saying. What we are saying is, just like in chess, a good chess player knows that, in general, it is a bad move to lose your queen. That's generally a good rule, a good, uh, we wouldn't say moral rule, but a good strategic rule within chess. But there are situations where actually giving up your queen might allow you to put your opponent in checkmate, and so it's a better move. So objectively in those situations, there's an objective right move to make. And just like in chess, there might be a bunch of different moves that you could make that would all be good moves. And there might be a lot of moves that you could make that would be bad moves. Morality does have a scale in some sense. When I'm looking at whether I could go to the grocery store at a King Supers or a Safeway or go and shoot someone, well, there's two good options there and there's one bad option there. Or I could add more to the scale by saying go and punch someone. Well, those would be two bad moral options and two good moral options. Third clarification is we are not saying that there is agreement on what these moral issues are. Okay. Objective morality would exist despite there being disagreement on what those things are. There's disagreement oftentimes on whether the earth is flat or round. Even to this day, people might want to argue for that. But that doesn't mean now that because we have people that disagree on whether the earth is flat or round, that for some people the earth is actually flat. That's not true. So, once again, if God exists... Objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. So your conclusion is that God does exist. Let's talk about premise two. Objective moral values and duties do exist. To argue against this premise, one would have to deny that objective morality exists. In other words, you would have to argue for what we call moral relativity. This ends up having a bunch of problems when we start looking at what moral relativism is. Defined, moral relativism is the belief that morals are a result of the culture and because of this are relative to the culture one is in. So where do morals come from? Evolution could be an example. We have decided that killing others is bad because it hurts the survival of the human beings as a species. 
that's where it could come from. Our evidence someone might give for moral relativism is that cultures seem to have clear differences on how they define right and wrong. Therefore, morals are relative to cultures. Here's the problem with this. Terms often are what seem to be different within cultures, not the actual morality. So here we have an example of someone who is wearing a full burqa, which in Middle Eastern Muslim societies is very modest, very humble, and a very righteous way to live. Where this girl wearing a bikini and her, her culture might look at the girl wearing a burqa and say, she is living in a male-dominated culture by wearing a burqa because all the men are telling her she has to wear a burqa to be modest. Where the woman wearing a burqa at the same time is looking at her and saying, she's living wearing a bikini in a male-dominating culture who is asking and telling the woman wearing a bikini to wear a bikini so guys can look at her. This isn't a conflict in morality. It's a conflict in an understanding of the terms. Because what they're both arguing for is modesty and that they should be able to dress as they want and as they wish. There's a universal agreement, for instance, that killing innocent human beings is wrong. But we don't do things like witch hunts anymore because we don't believe that witches actually exist. If we believe that there were actually people still today going around cursing you and all of the generations of people after you, of your offspring, we might say that it's actually worth killing those people, but generally we just don't believe those people exist anymore. The Nazis justified killing Jews because they defined them as subhuman, not because they thought it was okay to kill innocent human beings, but because they saw Jews as subhuman. Today, the same sort of thing happens. The pro-choice and pro-life argument isn't about a difference in morality, it's a difference in the definition of terms. Pro-choice advocates still agree that killing innocent human beings is wrong. They don't agree that the child within the womb is actually human. It's a disagreement on terms. It's not a disagreement on morality. Another problem with moral relativism is it cannot define culture. People don't fit neatly into this simple cultural groups. So one needs some way to determine which group one should follow when it comes to moral issues. I attend church. I'm a part of a ministry, but I'm also alumni of Colorado State University. I'm a citizen of the city of Fort Collins. Fort Collins is a city and most member or most alumni of Colorado State believe that abortion is okay. But my church and the organization that I work for believes that killing, uh, that abortion is not okay. If it is defined by culture, which one am I supposed to follow? If morality is defined by culture, which one should I follow? If I was an immigrant, should I follow what my culture was from the country I came from or the one that I live within? It seems like now you, if you are determining one way or another, you have decided that one is better than another, which means you're looking at a standard outside of both of them to determine, which therefore means that the culture is not actually determining what is right and wrong anymore. Another problem is relativism cannot improve in this. So when we look at Rosa Parks, who refused to sit in the back of the bus, we would actually have to say that she is actually going against what the culture said, and therefore she would be morally reprehensible in her 
in her culture because she was going against what society had decided was okay, that women and especially black people should not sit in the front of a bus. If morality is defined by culture, then change in culture doesn't represent improvement, but simply change. And that's it. We cannot say that the way things are now are better than they used to be. We can only say that the way things are now are different than they used to be regarding civil rights, regarding the ability of women to vote, regarding anything else. We can only say that it's a change, not that it's an improvement, because once you say it's an improvement from what it was, you're saying a standard that exists outside of both cultures, which means the cultures aren't defining what's right and wrong anymore. In fact, you would be saying that those who have worked for change in the culture would be morally wrong. MLK was a morally wicked person to do what he did in his culture to try to advocate for the rights of black people within American society that decided that black people should not have those rights. He would be morally reprehensible. He would not be a moral leader. He would be a moral failure by this definition. Lastly, moral relativism cannot judge cultures. When we look at something like the war happening in Ukraine, we cannot say that Russia and its leaders that have allowed for this war to happen are actually wrong. We could say we don't like it. We could say we don't agree with it. We cannot objectively say what they were doing is wrong, only that we don't like it just as much as we might not like chocolate ice cream. If morality is determined by culture, we cannot say other cultures are wrong, but only that we don't like their culture's definition of morality. If, if what is right is wrong is defined by culture and Russian culture is okay with invading Ukraine, then you cannot say that that culture is wrong because that culture would be just as valid as ours. So then interfere with their culture's moral view is to assume that yours is better. So once we decide that we're going to intervene in this war or in World War II or any other war or any other example of a culture doing something that we've decided is morally wrong, we would be assuming that our culture is better and share, showing that we don't actually believe in moral relativism. Now, what could they do? One option that someone who believes in moral relativism could do is what we call biting the bullet. The best reaction to this and biting the bullet is basically just saying, you're right, we can't judge culture. It is just my flavor. I just like this more than that. I can't actually say that what Russia is doing is wrong. I can't actually say that we're better than we used to be. You're right. All of those are three are true. I think the best approach that we can make in this is to do what's called reductio ad absurdum. This is a fancy way of just saying you're going to take the, the ideas that they're throwing out, showing the logical confusion, con, con, showing the logical conclusions of that view to show that it's not valid. So moral relativism when we take it to ad absurdum, we would be saying that rape is okay. Racism is okay. Police brutality is okay. Nazi concentrations or concentration camps are fine. Abortion is fine. Or making abortion illegal is fine. Now, this is an interesting thing that I think you can start doing. A tactic in all of this is most of the time, even when someone's saying I'm a moral relativist and they're even willing to bite the bullet, there is something that they really care about. Something like LGBTQ abortion rights, those are things that they're willing to stand their ground and say, this is how things should be. Find their pet thing, find their thing that they are saying that there shouldn't be laws about whatever else, 
and flip that card around. Even if it means, hey, there's something that I even agree with you is wrong, but showing them by your view that what you're saying is wrong and I might even agree with you is wrong. You can't actually say is wrong if you're saying that moral relativism is true. Homosexuality is fine and killing people for being homosexual would be fine under moral relativism. So last time, kind of repeating it. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Conclusion, God exists. So the other way you could, could go about this is to deny God as the source of, God is not the source of objective morality. Moral values do exist, but God does not, is not needed to do that. This is another way someone could argue against that. We must care about well-being. Here's the problem. When someone argues with this, what they start doing is they start arguing, well, we must do what's whatever is best for the species. But what they're doing now is not giving a grounding for morality, but they're actually explaining what morality is. They confuse explaining with what morality is with giving a grounding for the standard of that morality. We must care about well-being. Okay, why? Whatever will best help the species, why should I someone care if it helps the species? What makes humankind valuable objectively? This is where Christianity is able to give a grounding for objective morality because it looks at it and says, mankind is created in the image of God and therefore is valuable based upon that and that alone. And whether you believe that or not, that is true. And so you can reject that, but you would just be doing morality wrong, just like someone might say two plus two equals five. They would just be wrong. They can believe that if they wish, but they would just be wrong. When someone says that evolution shows that we should care about the survival of the species, and I say I don't care about the survival of the species, they can't give any reason beyond I should care about the survival of the species. What they're giving is an explanation of what morality is, not a grounding for it. So in the end, now we've given three arguments, three ways that we know that God must exist. One, we know that the universe hasn't always existed. That shows that we must have something that brought it into existence. Secondly, we know that the universe has a very precise design and things within it have a very precise design that are not well reasonably explained by evolution or other means. Lastly, we would look at morality that shows us that objective morality exists and the best explanation for all of that is that God exists. This is the most reasonable conclusion. Someone might be able to give you another explanation for these things, but I don't think they're gonna be as reasonable. In the end, that tells us that the cause of the universe the being or thing that created the universe must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, must be intelligent because it creates something that has a very precise design, and must be personal because it cares about morality. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like God. Hey, thanks for watching this all the way through. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out my blog, beardeddisciple.com. You can find more of my podcasts, YouTube videos, and even blogs. I have some content that I haven't put into forms like that. 
if you want to check out more of my stuff. You can also download most of my PowerPoints are right on my website. And there's also a tab there if you want to support this ministry, really allow me to produce more content. Thanks a lot.